So in our last session, we covered, I say nothing more, even though it's an exceptional amount and and such a wonderful blessing, we only covered our taking of Holy Eucharist. And we mentioned a number of things about the taking of Eucharist, things that are going on, the things that we are receiving in this relational transaction between us and God. We mentioned that we are receiving Christ, who is the law, the fulfillment of the law of God into our very being. And because we are filled with Him, we are then graced to fulfill the law by His strength, His power, and His virtues within us. Secondly, we talked about it being a fellowship with God. Obviously, when we are at the peak of the mountain, we are fellowshipping with God Himself through Jesus Christ. And we mentioned that specific piece of fellowship that's there, and that is the fellowship where God reveals Himself to us. And remember we mentioned the road to Emmaus. That the eyes of the disciples were hidden from recognizing Christ for who He was until what? Until the breaking of the bread. When Christ broke the bread, their eyes were opened to the revelation that Christ was with them. And that happens with us in Eucharist. We talked about it being the covenant meal, remaining in the covenant, kept by Jesus Christ for us. That it was the provision both for daily life and life eternal. And finally, that it is the day of the Lord. That every time we come to Eucharist, our Lord, because of His very nature and who He is, judges us. Again, judgment not being a negative term. He judges us for what He sees. And we should long for that judgment here and now rather than then. I want to know where I'm not like You, Lord. Show me as I come to You. And then we deal with it and find healing by our Lord Jesus Christ. So, having received Eucharist, what should we do after? And let's say, what should we do immediately after? Because once we receive Eucharist, some people remain there for a second, which is fine. Some people go immediately back to their pews. There is a brief time of silence once we receive Eucharist, just before the communion hymns start. And I encourage all of you, just as I encouraged you in how to deal in the silence, how to embrace silence, find God in silence and present yourself to God in silence, especially in the midst of our constantly noisy life. At least we have some time in here and we should make time in our lives for silent time with God. In that time of silence, having received Eucharist, it is a great time to continue fellowship with God. You go to receive from Him. You go and sit down, and that fellowship may lead to all sorts of things. It may lead to a continual praise and thanksgiving for everything that He has done on our behalf. You know what else it could be? It could be that the Lord, when you presented yourself to Him and He fed you of Himself, showed you some things you need to bring before Him. And you need to take time to do that as His healing work will continue in the midst of that fellowship. And even though, yes, we sing communion hymns, I want you to hear this. 
discern from within yourself what am I to do when those communion hymns start to play? Am I to join in singing with those who will join in singing, which is absolutely fine in the expression of praise and thanksgiving through song to God during that time, but I want to encourage you that if you feel that you need to remain silent still, you just be with God. That's the point. All of Mass... Everything we do, every action, word, and song, song, and things we receive into ourselves, the whole thing is a stage being set for you to literally be present with God as God presents Himself to you. And I'm telling you right now, there's sometimes when we come in and the singing is going on, there's sometimes my heart wants to sing with it, And there are times I need to place my hand over my mouth because God has shown me I need to address something. What I'm saying with you is simply be with God after Eucharist and let Him guide you through that time just beyond the taking of that Eucharist. Now, after that time is over with, we come to the prayer of thanksgiving that we all say together. But I want to read to you a couple of prayers that are not in here because the priest has to pray a couple of prayers after the ablutions are done. The ablutions are where you see the priest and others assisting in the cleansing of the plates and the chalices and so on. And after he is finished with that, before we sing our communion, our little communion line, hymn, and go to the prayer of thanksgiving, listen to these prayers. The first prayer the priest prays is for all of us. And he prays, Grant, O Lord, that what we have taken with our lips, we may receive with a pure heart, and that from a temporal gift, it may become for us an eternal Remedy. So even just after the priest has communed everyone, what's he praying? He's praying that let what we receive come into a pure heart towards something. That those temporal gifts, in other words, the physical things, bread and wine, that had been made into the body and blood of our Lord, that the temporal gift that would go away at some point may become for us an eternal remedy. Like we mentioned last week with what St. Ignatius said about the eternal remedy, when Jesus talks about it being the gift towards everlasting life in John in chapter 6. We talked about that. So St. Ignatius says that the Eucharist is the medicine of immortality as we take it in. And that prayer is praying that it be just that, that the temporal, all things temporal, become eternal. And then he prays a brief prayer for himself. And he prays, Let thy body, O Lord, which I have taken, and the blood which I have drunk, cleave to my soul, and grant that no spot of sin may remain in me, whom this pure and holy sacrament has refreshed. And that is one of the most meaningful prayers, I'll tell you, to me that I say in in Mass. When I've taken the body and blood, Lord, let what I've taken cleave so tightly to me. Don't let me walk out from you. Let the grace be so internally at work in me that I remain in you all my days, you know, to your glory. 
And so we come to the prayer of thanksgiving at the bottom of page 28. And we're going to break this prayer down because it's very important for us to understand what we're praying. Again, our human nature is the more we do something, the less we think about it. Things become routine if we're not careful. We've talked about that. That's why I want to delve into this prayer to remind us all of what we are praying in this prayer of thanksgiving. Okay? Alright. The first part of it is this. Let us pray. Almighty and ever-living God, we most heartily thank Thee For that Thou dost vouchsafe to feed us who have duly received these holy mysteries with the spiritual food of the most precious body and blood of Thy Son, our Savior, Jesus Christ. How many of you know that speaking the truth builds faith? We are proclaiming again in thanksgiving, in the form and context of thanksgiving, we are proclaiming, I have just taken the body and blood of Jesus Christ and I thank you for feeding me yourself. And there's an opportunity when we pray that prayer to be met with God for the building of our faith. If our faith was short and small and thin before we took Eucharist, God in His grace through the church gives us another opportunity for our faith to come to us. Even after we have taken. And so we pray, thank you Lord for feeding me your body and blood. Then we continue. And dost assure us thereby of thy favor and goodness towards us. I want to stop right there because I love this statement and the theology of the nature of God that it presents to us. We have just thanked God for feeding us His body and blood who dost assure us thereby. In other words, by that very gift of yourself, your body and blood, you have assured us of your favor and your goodness towards us. Let the shame of your deficiencies roll off in that moment and understand that this is the God who not only longs to cover your shame, but heal it and redeem it. That this is the God who gifts Himself. This is the God who gives Himself to us at all times for one reason. His longing for you to be with Him. Fathom that when you think about your frailties. Let the truth of who God is overcome the distance that we keep because we feel we are not worthy. The reality is we are not. But thanks be to God, He doesn't need us to be. He's come to make us worthy. And so when we say those words, that He dost assure us thereby of Thy favor and goodness towards us, know the favor and the goodness God has always toward you. In fact, I was I reminded me of one of the uh, one of the scriptures given during the comfortable words. We all know it, John three sixteen. Okay. And I'm going to stop though short of reading the whole thing because the first line is this. 
For God so loved the world that He gave. Now it goes on to say that He gave His only begotten Son to the end that all that believe in Him should have everlasting life and not perish. But you could just stop there. For God so loved the world that He gave. This is a God whose nature is always postured at the offering of Himself for the life of us. This is our God. And we thank Him for it at that point. Let's continue through the prayer of thanksgiving. And that we are members in corporate in the mystical body of Thy Son, which is the blessed company of all faithful people. I'm going to ask a question that's very obvious, but I'll ask it anyway. What is the sacrament that keeps us in the covenant that makes us the body of Christ? Communion. Eucharist. When we take Eucharist and become one with God, by virtue of our becoming one with God, we are kept in the eternal covenant one with another. If there is a momentary pinnacle pointing to the reality of the body of Christ, it's when the bride of Christ takes into herself the body and blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what we're proclaiming there. And that we are members in corporate in the mystical body of thy Son. How? By what we have taken and just thanked you for your favor towards us. And it goes further. And are also heirs through hope of thine everlasting kingdom by the merits of his most precious death and passion. So not only kept in the body of Christ, Eucharist is the extension of the covenant that makes us sons and daughters of God. Heirs of His kingdom, our Father in heaven, given to us just as through the Son. Don't you remember that Jesus, the Son of God, says, The glory, Father, You have given Me, I give to them. He shared His Sonship with all of us. And that's what we say at that point. But now in the prayer of thanksgiving, we have a bit of the turning of the tide of Mass. We have noticed where we have prepared. We've noticed where we have gone up the mountain, ascended the mountain. We have received Eucharist, and we're still there. All the way until this part of the prayer of thanksgiving, we're still with God, thanking Him, being with Him. But now the prayer turns from thankfulness to supplication, and it is at this very point that the church begins her descent to go and be the church with all she has received. Because listen to the prayer now. And we humbly beseech Thee, O Heavenly Father, so to assist us with Thy grace, that we may continue in that holy fellowship, continue in all the days of our life. Every moment of our existence can be a continuance and is set to be a continuance of absolute intimate fellowship with God. That we may continue in that holy fellowship and do all such good works as Thou hast prepared for us to walk in. 
we go from Eucharist having prayed that prayer on our way descending back to walk in fellowship with God and by the grace within that fellowship to fulfill the very mission of the church. To radiate the glory and all of the virtues of God in and through our lives that this present world might see a great light come into its darkness. What works? It's the ones that Paul talks about, St. Paul in Ephesians in chapter 2, very familiar verse to a lot of us, where he teaches, For we, the church, are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. God made Adam and Eve that by fellowship with Him and the growing in His likeness, He made Adam and Eve to reflect the glory of God in their own lives. Just like Paul says, standing in front of a mirror, if we're with God, reflecting His image. And that's what we're talking about here. We don't come to Mass to be with God just to fulfill the duty of the body of Christ to worship God. That is part of it. But we come to encounter God, be transformed in such a way every time we come to Mass that we leave resonating more from the very virtues of God so that people we come in contact with in our own homes, because that's where the rubber meets the road, isn't it? In our own homes, in our workplaces, schools, wherever we go, Christ is to shine forth, and the actions that come from those virtues. This is what we're talking about. You've heard me say before, using this expression of the, to describe the nature of a Christian, that the Christian is both a carrier of God and a courier of God. In other words, the carrier of God were temples of the Holy Spirit. Everywhere we go, God is... Infinitely. But we are also couriers of the God who is within us. That through us we deliver to the people that we are around that precious gift. Hmm? That's who we are. That's who we are. So we have concluded the prayer of thanksgiving. And from now on when you pray that prayer... Allow the Lord to bring back to your memory some of the things that we reflected on. And I pray that that will deepen your experience during communion of that fellowship with Him and prepare you to go from here to serve the living God and glorify Him in your life. So we come now to the post-communion colics. Remember in the Mass we have colics. We have secret prayers that the priest prays under his, his, his breath. And we have post-communion colics, the number of which all match. So if you have three colics, you have three secrets, three post-communions, and so on. But the purpose of the post-communion prayers is this. They are all prayers that 
by the grace of God that our taking of the Eucharist would have God's complete and desired transformative effect in our lives to the salvation of our own souls and the salvation of the world. Let me give you just two examples. One from last week. Third Advent, post-communion. Have mercy on us, O God, we beseech Thee, and grant that the heavenly assistance of these holy mysteries may so cleanse us from all our iniquities that we may be made worthy to keep the coming festival. We're praying that what we've taken has a particular work in our lives. Listen to today's post-communion prayer. We beseech Thee, O Lord, that as we have now received Thy gifts, so by continually drawing near to this mystery, we may set forward the work of of our salvation. You kind of get in the gist of these post-communion prayers because they're all like this. All of them are asking God to have His holy way as He feeds us Himself. Save us, save the world by the feeding of yourself. Let them have their completed effect. Okay? And obviously, again, remember, just like the collects, not the secrets, but the collects and the post-communions, you'll notice that the priest is never saying I, he's saying what? We. We, which means it's not the priest's prayer. As the priest prays it, pray with him. Lift your hearts up with him. Be of one mind together as we pray this prayer. We come now towards the end of Mass The priest turns once again after the post-communion prayers to bestow that great prayer upon the people, the Lord be with you. And you respond, and with thy spirit. And at that point, the deacon then addresses the faithful, proclaiming the end of the Mass. says, the Mass has ended, and then he will either say, depart in peace, or let us bless the Lord. Normally it's one of those two variations depending on the meaning and the season of the Mass. During Advent, during Lent, and so on, penitential seasons, it tends to be let us bless the Lord. But he addresses them saying the Mass has ended, now we're going to depart. Now the priest then goes to the middle of the altar, and before he gives the blessing of peace, he prays a prayer that you don't get to hear I thought I'd share with you. He prays the following. Let the obedient performance of my bounden duty be pleasing unto thee, O Holy Trinity, and grant that this sacrifice which I, unworthy as I am, have offered in the sight of thy majesty, may be acceptable unto thee, and may through thy mercy obtain thy favor for myself and and for all those in whose behalf I've offered it. It's another admission of unworthiness, yet thankfulness. It's a prayer that, Lord, if I have been faithful, here's what it's saying. If I've been faithful, despite my weaknesses, may it be that you extend your favor to me and extend the experience of your favor to the body of Christ as a whole. That's what the priest prays. It's a beautiful prayer. Because trust me, the priest knows perfection is not in him. The God of perfection is in him, but he has frailties. So let my faithful duty as you've called me to do be enough. 
and I trust when I pray that, and any priest trusts when he prays that, that because of who God is, he will compensate far beyond my weaknesses to extend that very favor. Okay? So that's the prayer of the priest. Now, on page 29, we come to the blessing. And the priest begins, The peace of God, which passeth all understanding, keep your hearts and minds in the knowledge and love of God. I want you to get this, that first prayer, that first part. Not just the intellectual knowledge we're talking about. It's the same knowledge that the disciples on the road to Emmaus came to at the breaking of the bread where they knew Him. It says they knew Him in the breaking of the bread. That's how fervently and dynamically He was revealed to them. And this prayer is, The peace of God which passeth all understanding, keep your minds in that knowledge and the experience of the love of God over you, and His Son, Jesus Christ, our Lord. Now at this point, you notice, as you notice, I think, three different times in the Mass, you will see the priest raise his hands to heaven as if to bring it down. That's the motion the priest is given, and it's very telling of what the priest is asking for and what God is doing. The priest is asking for the blessing on you, and so he goes to get it. And it comes from the very throne of heaven, this blessing of peace. And then he turns, having obtained it, and he turns to you. And he blesses you and he says, And the blessing of God Almighty, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Ghost be amongst you and remain with you forever. And the blessing having been given, here's where we're going to dive just a little bit for a few minutes into why we no longer make announcements before John chapter 1. Because the blessing that you are given there and the Word of God going forth in John chapter 1 are tied together. What is it that was just prayed as a blessing over you? The peace of God, the knowledge of God be upon you, the love of God. In other words, everything that the incarnation is, God becoming man, be with you, be upon you and bless you. And so now we come to John chapter 1. And there is no argument that John chapter 1 is the premier portion of John's gospel and any writing in the New Testament. It is the premier expression of the incarnation of God. The God who came to dwell with us, among us, and is still in that posture with us and among us. Emmanuel. It reminds us that the incarnation, God becoming man in the person of Jesus Christ, was given for, specifically for the salvation of the world. God became man to dwell among us. And for those in whom He dwells, John teaches, for those in whom He dwells, they have received power to become the sons of God, the continuing incarnation of God in and through the body of Jesus Christ. See, we're leaving Mass at this point. Because we're going to go from here to the hymn. We're leaving Mass with the reality 
of everything that we've been blessed with in the Mass. God Himself taking Him with us through hearing the words of the Gospel of John as the reality of a central point in our faith. Now when we have the procession out to the singing of a hymn, allow yourself to be as aware of that procession as we talked about you being aware of all of the things passing in front of you when we came in. Because as we came in, it was a symbol to us. Remember I told you the church used to all gather together. In the early church when it was smaller, still spreading, they would gather outside of the church, the priest would come and they would all follow him in to go up to the mountain of God together. The procession is the reminding symbol of that very action. So think about this, when the procession goes out and you see the incense and you see the cross and you sign yourself with the cross all of, and you bow, what is the procession symbolizing as it goes out? Thoughts? Christ going into the world. Christ going into the world and through who? Us. Through us. We are departing, not the procession. We are going from here, having been filled with the God who created all things, to go and express the God who created all things into the world. That's what the procession out grants us. To go and fill the mission, fulfill the mission of the church, which we heard our Lord Jesus Christ give in Matthew 28, the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all things that I have commanded you, and lo, I am with you always to the end of the age. We go to let the light of God shine and be found faithful. That we may be found faithful, just as in the parable of the talents. The parable of the talents is not about people's giftings and it's not about money. The talents are the inheritance of God. The talents are the inheritance of the kingdom of God within us. And those who went out and duplicated, in other words, let the light shine forth through them to where others came and gained that same inheritance where the inheritance grew Those are the ones who were blessed when they came back to the Father. Those, remember the one who did what with his talent? Buried it. Did nothing with the inheritance. We are given the inheritance for our salvation and to see others find it too. The one who buried it is the one that had some problems when he came back to the Master. Does this mean that everyone in the body of Christ has to be gifted with it as an evangelist? No. The incarnational ministry of Christ oftentimes has nothing to do with talking, but being. But we are called to the inheritance that we've been given to express that inheritance in the way God has graced us to our families, our homes, and those around us at all times. Having come to the conclusion of this series, The Mass in Our Life in Christ, I want to end the way that I began 
with a quote from Father Alexander Schmemann from his book, For the Life of the World. Having gone 16 weeks now, looking, picking this stuff apart, now listen to his words again, see if you find them a bit more meaningful. He writes, The early Christians realized that in order to become the temple of the Holy Spirit, they must ascend to heaven where Christ has ascended. They realized also that this ascension was the very condition for their mission in the world, of their ministry to the world. For there in heaven, in the Mass, they were immersed in the new life of the kingdom, and when after this liturgy of ascension, they returned into the world, their faces reflected the light, the joy and peace of that kingdom, and they were truly its witnesses. They brought no programs and no theories, but wherever they went, the seeds of the kingdom of God sprouted. Faith was kindled, life was transfigured, things impossible were made possible. They were witnesses, and when they were asked, Whence shines the light? Where is the source of its power? They knew what to answer and where to lead men. In the name of the Father, and of the Son, and of the Holy Spirit. Amen. Let's stand.